Welcome to the Not Old Better Show. I'm your host, Paul Vogelzang, and this is episode number 314. As part of our Smithsonian Associates Art of Living series, our guest today is Brandon Terry. Dr. Brandon Terry is a distinguished assistant professor of African and African-American studies and social studies at Harvard University. Dr. Terry recently won the Best Paper Award from the Foundations of Political Theory section of the American Political Science Association and the Alex Willingham Best Political Theory Paper Award from the National Conference of Black Political Scientists. Today on the Not Old Better Show, we'll be talking with Dr. Brandon Terry about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s political legacy. We know Martin Luther King Jr. for his call to action, his passion and rhetoric, and as an almost mythic figure of consensus and conciliation. But has this popular interpretation overshadowed some of his most mature thoughts on other topics, such as Dr. King's ethical and political thought, and Dr. King's embrace of radical challenges facing America even today. When threats are mortal, retreat and accommodation are avenues to self-destruction. As we scour for exemplars of struggle, we must not write off the United States' most peculiar radical and his enduring intellectual and political challenge. King calls on us to think and argue publicly about the crises of our present and collectively determine the broadest range of nonviolent coercive powers at our disposal. Our very survival, King wrote in his Where Do We Go From Here, depends on our ability to stay awake, to adjust to new ideas, to remain vigilant, and to face the challenge of change. The spirit of King is most alive when we embrace these challenges and endeavor with courage, humility, and a sense of the great sacrifices ahead to shape a new world out of divine dissatisfaction with injustice. That, of course, is our guest today, Dr. Brandon Terry, who will be presenting at the Smithsonian Associates series titled Martin Luther King Jr.'s Political Legacy, Wednesday, January 23, 2019, at the Ripley Center in Washington, D.C. Please join me in welcoming via internet phone to the Not Old Better Show, Dr. Brandon Terry. Dr. Brandon Terry, welcome to the Not Old Better Show. Thank you so much for having me, Paul. Great to talk to you. Your presentation at Smithsonian Associates is coming up, so tell us briefly about the presentation. Uh, sure, so what I'm focusing on in the talk and what I've been focusing on in my work over the past few years is recovering Martin Luther King's contributions, uh, not simply as a historical actor, as a civil rights activist or minister, but as a public philosopher. And what do I mean by that? I mean, someone who thinks and argues in public about our shared morality, about our shared system of government, our shared social habits and rules of interaction, and who tries to intervene uh, to point us in a new direction uh, upon which we could build uh, a more just society, a better world, a world more conducive uh, to, to human flourishing as he sees it. Uh, I think this is a king that we've forgotten. Um, it's, it's a king who's, who lives more in the five books he published uh, than in our snippets and images of him that you know, uh, dot our screens from middle of January to the end of February. Uh, and, and, and part of what we've been working on is, is trying to lead people back to King as a thinker, to engagement with his text and careful reconstruction of his philosophical and theoretical contributions. 
Thank you for that. Uh, you know, certainly our audience will remember uh, Dr. King well, and, and maybe, as you suggest, during just these, these times of the year, uh, each year, but, but it has been 50 years after Dr. King's death. And at one point I read in my research uh, of you and, and of Dr. King that uh, Dr. King, fearing uh, his own death was near, he said of his critics that they've never really known me, my commitment or my calling. So in the 50 years since Dr. King's death, have we come to know Dr. King better? Do, do we know what his calling and commitments were? I think we're subject to the same indictment. Um, I think, you know, as I've written uh, in, in, in my, uh, as I've written in my book, um, 50 years since MLK, uh, in the essay MLK Now, uh, I think there have been costs to, the, to his canonization, right? Uh, we have turned him into a symbol of reconciliation, a um, mythic figure who sacrificed himself uh, for American progress and American redemption from our original sin of racism. I think in the most cynical appropriations, he's used as a, a mouthpiece for the pernicious idea of uh, colorblind jurisprudence or the idea that we've overcome the kind of most uh, deeply seated structural problems of racism, uh, racial uh, inequality in the society. Uh, I think we, even, even uh, setting aside those more pernicious appropriations, I still think we, we often treat King as if he's, um, as if his main contributions are sort of rhetorical or strategic, right? That basically what he's doing is, is uh, reminding us of who we have always been uh, and forcing us to live up to who we should have been all along. And what we want to say is that if you, if you actually go back and read him, <laughs> uh, if you, if you listen to the speeches in their entirety, instead of uh, picking out snippets here and there, you get a really comprehensive and challenging vision that doesn't look much like the society we live in. It's not who we always have been. Uh, it's, a, it's a call for what, what he described as a radical revaluation of values, um, a chance to put our political economy, our military, uh, our um, educational system, our municipal governments on uh, a, a much different moral footing, an ethical grounding, uh, something that would uh, uproot our notions of value, uh, force us to be more courageous and challenging in justice where we see it, uh, and opening up um, our decision-making uh, to, to much more uh, radical, agonistic, democratic engagement rather than a kind of closed-door bureaucratic judgments. Um, these are all features of King that I think have, have uh, I mean, almost essentially fallen out of the picture. Uh, and you know, in, in favor of a neat morality play. And we need to bring back some of the, quite frankly, the danger of Martin Luther King, right? Um, the, the, the fact that he uh, remains in many ways a contemporary figure for us, somebody who was challenging to the ideas uh, that we um, treat as uh, axiomatic even now. And so take one of those ideas, you know, these, as you're referring to them, the, the, the deeper, the more complicated ideas, the more mature ideas beyond, you know, what we will remember about Dr. King, his, his soaring oratory and, and, 
and other memories that we have. But take one of those for us, uh, Dr. Terry, and, and dive in a little bit more deeply and tell us maybe what they are and, and, and one that might not we might not be so familiar with and, and what it means to take Dr. King more seriously as a political philosopher. Sure. Um, let me take, uh, here's, here's one, for example. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think one of King's persistent uh, criticisms of the way we tend to engage in um, public philosophy, moral philosophy, and uh, political debate is that he thought we, as a species, and particularly in advanced um, democratic capitalist societies, that we've hit a moment where we're no longer in a period of scarcity, right? This isn't a hunter-gatherer society whose um, access to resources fluctuates with the climate, for example. Uh, We have enormous productive capacities at our disposal. We have an enormous amount of wealth. And he thought that in a society like that, um, that to continue to draw on a moral vocabulary that was forged in a time of scarcity, uh, where you eat what you kill, right? Um, Only the people who can work 70 hours a week can stay above the poverty line, things like that. He thought that those were, uh, not only were they misguided, but at this point, they've become something much worse, that they've become a form of contempt, a form of cruelty uh, deployed toward the poor and the dispossessed. He thought it was um, imperative, given the kind of societies we live in now, to uh, affect a kind of revaluation of what it really means to contribute, right? Uh, what kind of labor has dignity and what that dignity should entail. Uh, he thought that, you know, so t- toward the end of his life, he started to defend the idea of a basic income for everyone. Right. As a way of uh, our society collectively deciding that we're going to show people that we think of them highly as persons, right, as persons with worth, that their worth isn't determined just by what kind of job they have. Um, He thought that we needed to rethink the categories of labor and how we dole out esteem to certain forms of labor, As, as, as many people know. He died in Memphis, and he had gone to Memphis to help uh, sanitation workers on a garbage strike, right? Uh, These workers had been subject to all sorts of um, racial humiliations, uh, economic exploitation. And one of the things he would often say in his speeches while he was in Memphis is that, uh, you know, we we treat doctors with an enormous amount of esteem because they uh, help us defeat disease and overcome illness. What do you think sanitation workers do? Mm Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, like, let's really think about what kind of practice this is, what kind of labor this is. This is an enormous contribution to the safety and flourishing of the other people in our society. But we don't give them the kind of esteem they deserve. Uh, he thought that there were ways of uh, reorganizing the basic rules of political economy so that we could achieve a better recognition of this dignity. Things like empowering workers to uh, bargain collectively um, more effectively, things like this basic minimum income, things like allowing uh, renters or people who are recipients of welfare to organize collectively and make demands on the bureaucratic structures or renters 
that that uh, that they were engaged in commercial transaction with. This is just a much more radical democratic vision, and it's one that's rooted in the basic idea that in an affluent society, uh, everyone has dignity and should receive uh, a sufficient share of the social wealth. We are with Dr. Brandon Terry. Dr. Terry will be at the Ripley Center presenting Martin Luther King Jr.'s political legacy on the 23rd of January, 2019. Dr. Terry is with us today. We're talking with you, Dr. Terry, about your book, To Shape a New World, Essays on the Political Philosophy of Martin Luther King Jr. There's a book signing uh, at the Smithsonian Associates presentation on the 23rd, and we're looking forward to your presentation, Dr. Terry. I wonder if you'd take us into the book a little bit, uh, and you and, and others challenge many ideas about Dr. King. Uh, maybe some of these uh, stereotypes, maybe some of these misconceptions about Dr. King. I wonder what what was the idea that struck you most about Dr. King and, and his legacy? Um, I think the thing that was most surprising as I really read his entire corpus, um, and this is and this comes out in an essay in the volume done by the philosopher at Tufts, uh, Lionel McPherson, mm-hmm. uh, is really his um, his critique of militarism. Uh, and his critique of U.S. foreign policy uh, during the Vietnam era. And I think what's what was surprising for me about it, I mean, you grow up learning, of course, you know, Martin Luther King, the advocate of nonviolence. Of course, he's going to be against war. Uh, of course, he's going to have lots of pacifist commitments. Um, but these are, you know, in your mind, often these are seen as, uh, you know, hyper-moralistic, uh, you know, Lionel does a great job in the volume of making, uh, of bringing up Barack Obama's Nobel Prize acceptance speech, where uh, President Obama actually uses Martin Luther King as the foil to say, well, this is a vision of nonviolence, but that has no realistic basis in what we can do uh, for the foreign policy of our country. And I think what was so fascinating about reading King is that you actually do get a sense of, um, how realist his nonviolence is. Uh, I think King was very attuned to the ways in which militarism actually uh, functions from a broad array of fantasies, which have, uh, which have little basis in the empirical outcomes. Uh, he draws attention to the fact that um, militarism draws on uh, myths of hypermasculinity and frontier culture, uh, this idea that, well, something must be done to, um, to show strength in the face of, um, of any provocation. Uh, and this, uh, this idea of showing strength has become equated with violence. And we often resort to this, you know, this performance of strength, this performance of violence without actual long-term strategy about how to extract ourselves from conflicts, how to mitigate against civilian casualties, how not to empower um, enemies for the long run. Uh, King was attuned to those, to those questions very early on. He was also um, somebody who thought a lot about, well, when you go into conflict with somebody, you really have to interrogate two things. One is what you may have done to precipitate such a conflict. And the second is, what are the motivations that the other people have for engaging in the conflict? Uh, 
And those sound like very simple things, but often we engage in violence without adequately doing either of those things. Um, and he was also really attuned to the idea that uh, violence inevitably creates forms of resentment, forms of bitterness, because in part it's so difficult to control the boundaries of violence. You go in to attack certain people, you end up killing civilians. You go in to disrupt one regime, you end up disrupting the regimes all around it. Uh, you go in to save a group of people, and then you end up creating a refugee crisis for outstripping what you could have ever imagined. These are things that um, militarism glides over often, but this kind of nonviolent realism tries to take very, very seriously. And I, I came to have a lot of appreciation for King's vision in these regards uh, and have been really moved by the writings that I've edited um, on, on his nonviolent foreign policy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Let's talk about uh, a subject that that Dr. King is, is very much associated with. And, and as a matter of fact, I, I know that you're completing a book. Uh, I believe the title is The Tragic Vision of the Civil Rights Movement. Yes. Uh, and, and, and Dr. King, of course, is very much associated with the civil rights movement. Should we think, just as we're thinking about Dr. King differently, should we think about the civil rights movement differently as a result of this? Oh, definitely. I, I, I mean, you know, part of, partly what the King Project is about and then my other book project is about is, is trying to unpack how we narrate the history of the civil rights movement, uh, how we make decisions about, you know, um, the stories we tell, where they begin, who their main characters are, what their scope and expanses, uh, where the story ends, right? Does it end on the balcony in Memphis or is it still going on? Uh, these questions, I think, these narrative questions end up uh, drawing upon, you know, much, much deeper political and philosophical commitments. Uh, and one of the things that I think when you, when you rethink the legacy of King, when you return to these texts, the civil rights movement doesn't seem any longer like just a struggle to extend the existing rights uh, of the U.S. Uh, democratic order to uh, disenfranchised African-Americans, right? Uh, it doesn't seem just like a morality play where people are making um, arguments of conscience to a broader public that had never adequately considered these issues before. Um, it's a global story. It's a story about uh, bringing to bear the leverage of the Cold War order on the American state uh, and, 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 and forcing really fundamental revisions. It's an imaginative story. It's a story of people confronting new structures of uh, mass consumer society, right? Uh, television, of confronting uh, a new political economic order uh, and, and, and trying to envision uh, really uh, radical experimental changes to that order. We often look at what has come out of the civil rights movement and treat that as if those were the goals to begin with, but that's not the case. They're, they're the victories that people were able to win, but they weren't the most expansive visions, right? Um, going back through King's Corpus, you see all sorts of things where he's talking about, um, well, could we have arbitration boards that are akin to labor negotiation boards that would deal with racial conflict in the cities? 
could we uproot the existing municipal boundaries, uh, which facilitate the kind of opportunity hoarding you see in the suburbs where, um, you know, uh, funds for those school systems are kept separate and segregated from funds for the broader uh, metropolitan area, which end up usually uh, disempowering poor and African-American students. Um, these are pieces of the civil rights puzzle that, you know, again, are, aren't, aren't usually put at the forefront. Um, but they're a huge part of the story. And what I'm talking about is a kind of tragic vision is somehow being able to tell the story in a way that holds on to those defeats and sees uh, those those things that were lost, those roads not taking, as as still possibilities that can animate political struggle in the present. You know, how do you tell the story in a way that um, that highlights those and foregrounds those? And one of the ways I think that you can do that is by um, being uh, really faithful to the intellectual production of a lot of the key members of the civil rights struggle. I'm curious. Dr. Terry, and you, you refer to this, you say that perhaps the civil rights movement didn't end on that balcony in Memphis. And if, if that's the case, and, and we think about what the book is identifying uh, as really almost resources that might help us currently understand political crises that are around us, uh, race and economic equality, inequality, uh, partisan cynicism, democracy and, and war, these are, are considered some, some dramatic ideas and maybe even some radical challenges. Uh, are those, uh, what you're referring to is kind of taking the civil rights movement uh, up to today? Yes, I mean, I, I think, mm -hmm. uh, so there are two ways to think about that question. I mean, one is a more narrowly historical sense, which is, um, you know, to ask what happens to the classical civil rights groups uh, as, you know, in, in the wake of the King assassination. And I think that's an important and compelling story. Um, the thing that you're picking up on and, and, and the thing that I want to emphasize here are the ways in which the ideas that may have been central to the civil rights struggle or the classical civil rights struggle and defeated uh, might provide a critical lens for the present, right? For us to assess some of the weaknesses of our own approaches to politics. Um, and so let me just give you uh, two quick examples. Um, one is thinking about the political agency of the truly disadvantaged, right? So one of the things that's really remarkable about the classical civil rights struggle and, and, and King actually explicitly makes this point in, in comparing his own movement with earlier attempts to organize African-Americans to agitate politically. And he, and he says that one of the things that he's really trying to do um, is empower everyday people to fight for their own dignity and to participate in the world of politics. And We've drifted so far from that vision. Uh, we have offloaded a lot of political struggle onto the courts, into our bureaucracies. Um, the things that we do use with everyday people are often 
mediated through many, many layers of technology, which we're now coming to realize uh, are, are, are often irresponsibly curated or managed. And what King wanted to do was to defend the idea that the even the most disadvantaged people, the people who are most stigmatized, most marginalized, uh, actually have an enormous role to play in politics. They have real ideas. They have uh, capacities to um, upend the forms of oppression they face when they work in, in solidarity with other people. And that no uh, democratic or egalitarian politics should proceed without that uh, presumption. So when he moved to Chicago in 1966 to uh, highlight the conditions of ghetto poverty on the West Side uh, and in northern ghettos more generally, he actually uh, recruited and organized gang members in Chicago, had all night debates with these guys in his apartment that he moved into right in the slum apartment, um, recruited some of these guys to join nonviolent marches uh, and helped bolster, um, the, you know, a kind of political consciousness among uh, many of the members of, of these youth gang formations uh, to, to, to really, um, you know, change the, the structure of the city forever. Now, these are people who in contemporary politics are just seen as totally outside the realm of political engagement, right? They're a problem to be solved, not part of the coalition that could, um, you know, build a more just society. And King just didn't didn't think like that. And I think we need a recovery of that kind of ethos, um, one that, that takes really seriously the political agency of the oppressed. You know, um, the, the only other thing I would say really quickly um, – because you know, I don't want to go on, but it, but he also has, uh, you know, King is is famous for talking about love a lot, but I think people haven't really wrestled um, enough with what he meant by it. And there is an important love ethic that I think is a challenge to a lot of the humiliation and counter humiliation that we see on social media and that passes for political discourse these days. Um, and King's uh, concept of love as being a part of contentious politics, this idea of goodwill for an enemy, this idea of uh, believing that an enemy has the capacity to change and that you want your enemies to believe that you have the capacity to change because you'll inevitably be wrong or, um, or fail in some regard, that that kind of conception of love, the, the unwillingness to give up on the dignity of our opponents, is a, a, a thing that I think is really, really valuable uh, for, for politics today and that has been almost totally uh, lost. And Dr. Brandon Terry, we really appreciate your time. We know you're very busy. I just have one final question for you, and it has to do with the quote that you offered us uh, very, just right at the top of the show, and it's from your essay in the book. And you, you say, and I, I really love this phrase, you, you say that Dr. King's legacy is most alive Will we embrace these challenges? And I, I wonder, how are we doing in this regard? And 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 what would Dr. King think today? Are, are, are we going to be successful in overcoming these sacrifices that, that are ahead of us? Well, in some ways, if you look at his triple evils of racism, militarism, and poverty, we're not doing well, mm-hmm. right? Uh, racial polarization and partisan polarization are overlapping in ways that are pretty much unprecedented. Uh, Anti-Muslim 
and anti-Latino attitudes are, are prime movers in U.S. politics at this point. We still have refused to address basic structural disadvantages facing African-Americans, especially the black poor uh, all around the country and health, education, access to wealth, uh, employment. You know, I've got I've got college freshmen. Uh, you talk about militarism. I have college freshmen who have never been alive during a time that the United States was not at war. Right. Um, we've got insane wealth inequality where the top one percent own 40 percent of American wealth, not accounting for illicit offshore holdings. And 40 million people in the United States alone live below the poverty line. And 2 million people live on less than $2 a day. Uh, and all of these kind of statistics are made even worse by the fact that they don't count the 2 million people who are incarcerated right now in the United States. So on, on these scores, we're not doing well. I don't think anyone should be under the illusion that we're doing well. And things may be getting worse in some regards. We're seeing a real attack on democracy. I mean. I, I never thought I would really see the day where we're still debating the Voting Rights Act um, and that the, the question of the vote and enfranchisement is not really, uh, it, sorry, let me restate that. Um, I never thought I'd see the day that uh, we would see a, a, a kind of wholesale assault on the Voting Rights Act of 1965 and that people um, are not even organizing around, uh, at least the, the professional politicians are not even organizing around the fact that this is an attack on the basic dignity of many of our citizens. Uh, that the, the right to vote is tied up in this question of dignity. That's what King would say. So, you know, there's a lot to be afraid of right now. There's a lot to be disappointed by. Uh, but what I think is so remarkable about reading King and so remarkable about his example is that he wants us to stare these evils, these injustices in the face and do something. And I think when you read him, you realize how much of the politics are experimental, are creative, are imaginative. So, you know, we have a, a fixed picture in our head of what protest looks like, you know, what it means to to protest is to march solemnly with a sign and sing these songs. But I think what, what King wants us to do is think really critically about what kind of protest do we need in this moment? How do we use the technology of our time to produce the kind of changes we need to see? How are we most creative uh, in building the solidarities that are required to overcome the evils of racism, militarism, and poverty. And I would add um, sexism to, to, that, to that list. How do we do that uh, in this moment? And so for me, King is, is uh, a challenging thinker to help us work through our own time. You know, not somebody who's there with the answers already ready-made with exactly what to do, but someone who gives you the courage to do something and the critical resources to ask the right questions, um, to, to find answers that would actually be appropriate to our moment. Dr. Brandon Terry, uh, important subject and important conversation. We're looking forward to seeing you on the 23rd of January. Timely and uh, interesting subject, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, 
political philosopher. Uh, fascinating. We, we so appreciate your time, Dr. Terry. Uh, thank you. And uh, we'd love to have you back to talk a little oh, bit. Oh, anytime. It's an honor to be part of the conversation. And thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Dr. Terry. Remember Dr. Brandon Terry, co-editor of the new book, To Shape a New World, Essays on the Political Philosophy of Martin Luther King Jr. will be available for sale and signing. Dr. Terry will be appearing at the Smithsonian Associates Program presentation, Martin Luther King Jr.'s Political Legacy, January 23, 2019, 6.45 p.m. at the Ripley Center. Thanks to Dr. Brandon Terry for joining me today. And thanks to the wonderful Smithsonian team for all they do to support the show. The Not Old Better Show. Talk about better. Thanks, everybody.